Hi there, this is Watchin, and you are now listening to the I Choose the Ladder podcast, a podcast for Black women on the corporate climb. In this episode, you meet Andrea Zopp, the president and CEO of World Business Chicago. At World Business Chicago, she leads the organization's mission of inclusive economic growth, supporting businesses, and promoting Chicago as a leading global city. Most recently, she served as Deputy Mayor, Chief Neighborhood Development Officer for the City of Chicago. Andrea has dedicated her career to being a force of change. She has championed job creation, access to education, corporate responsibility, and promoting economic development initiatives in underserved communities. She served in the U.S. Attorney's Office and was the first woman and African-American to serve as the first assistant in the Cook County State's Attorney's Office. Andrea has held executive leadership positions at several Fortune 500 companies, including Sarah Lee, Sears Holding, and Exelon. As the former president and CEO of the Chicago Urban League, she led the nationally recognized organization's focus on expanding economic opportunity in underserved communities, helping youth and young adults achieve academic and career success and advocacy for social justice. Andrea has held multiple civic and business appointments. She was appointed to the Chicago Board of Education by Mayor Rahm Emanuel and to the Cook County Health and Hospital System Board by Cook County Board President Tony Perkwinkle. Andrea also currently serves on the board of the Urban Partnership Bank. She's a graduate of Harvard College and Harvard Law School. Now, if you live in Chicago, you know Andrea Zop, or you have heard of Andrea Zop, most affectionately known as Andy. And in this conversation, we talk about everything from the importance of the Urban League to running for Senate to being the only one. And also something that you'll see that she's very passionate about is expanding economic opportunities for black people. We also talk about things like why she doesn't watch shows like Empire and Power. So Hi, Andy. Welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Martin. How are you? I'm great. I'm great. I'm really excited to talk to you because I think you're one of the women in Chicago who everyone loves. Like, you don't meet anyone who says anything bad about Andy's app, so... You have to widen your circle just a little, <laughs> just a little bit. Um, but thank you for saying that. It makes me feel good. Um, so you're the CEO of World Business Chicago. What does that mean? So World Business Chicago is the city's economic development organization. So we recruit uh, businesses to Chicago and help companies that are here expand or promote the city globally. And we're really focused on inclusive growth. And that means really thinking about how do we expand the economic opportunity that's coming to Chicago to communities outside of the central business district particularly communities that have been traditionally underinvested in. Mm, got it. And so is this something that you dreamed of as a kid to be your job? <laughs> no. Uh, as a kid, I'm pretty sure I had no idea that anything like World Business Chicago actually existed. Okay. So like most of us, you know, and I think it's an issue when we think about our young people now, it's hard to think about being something if you can't see it or you haven't seen it in your neighborhood or in your family or you know, in your church. So I think for me and my family, I did, you know, I was fortunate. I grew up in a family of college-educated edu- African-Americans. And all, uh, they did, all did HBCUs. And, oh, wow. Um, I had teachers and uh, lawyers. My father was a lawyer. My uncle was a lawyer. My other uncle was a doctor. My mom uh, was a high school teacher and then did a- HR. So I had those kind of examples in my life. And uh, initially thought that uh, I would uh, was going to go to medical school and then got to college and 
realized that I really didn't like math all that much, <laughs> and I really, really didn't like chemistry, and so uh, to, it had to change gears a little bit and spend some time in Washington working for my congressman and got really connected to the law and the laws and the way they impact people and decided that I would go to law school, which I absolutely loved. So you did love law I, school. I loved law school. What did you love about it? I just, you know, I loved, I'm, anal, I'm an analytical person. I love stories and I love history and law really is about stories of uh, events and activities and, and how they were decided and, and uh, the history of, of it is really about legal precedent is really just a kind of history of the application of law. So um, I really I enjoyed it. I uh, didn't love all of it. I didn't love tax. Um, I, I love the more of the of criminal law in particular. And um, corp- I actually liked corporate law, the uh, application of how business works and thinking. And so um, I really enjoyed all of my time in law school. And then what was your first big girl job out of law school? Well, my first job out of law school was I clerked for a federal judge here in Chicago. That's why I came to Chicago. I'd never been here before. Okay. I came for a, what was a two-year job and thought I wanted to be in a city and had tried some of the cities on the East Coast and hadn't found one that was really a click. So I came here to Chicago. It was a two-year job with a guy named, a gentleman named George Layton, uh, Judge okay. Layton. Uh, actually, they named the federal, the, not federal, the, the criminal, Cook County Criminal Courts building after him. Uh, he just uh, passed away this year. He was 105. Oh my God! He passed away. He was an amazing, an amazing guy. He represented Martin Luther King uh, when he came here, and um, he was terrific. So I clerked for him, and I fell in love with Chicago. It's a mm. great legal community. It's it's got everything. I grew up in upstate New York. Okay. My grandmother lived in New York City, so I spent a lot of time in New York. And I think Chicago for me had all the great things about New York City, but without a lot less of the hassle. Mm people were very nice here. The legal community was really strong. And so uh, I stayed. So I worked for Judge Layton for two years, and then I went into the prosecutor's office. I was a federal prosecutor, U.S. attorney, assistant United States attorney, for about seven years. And then um, I did a little short little stint in private practice, and then I went to the state's attorney's office. And I was there for another six and a half years. I became ultimately became the number two in the office, called the first assistant. But though it's second in command after the state's attorney who's the elected official. So I was the first per, uh, woman and first uh, person of color to ever hold that role. Oh, my so, gosh. Um, and that really was about, it's like basically being the COO of a large law firm. And we represent, we did all the criminal cases, but we also represented the County of Cook. So mm-hmm. we're the County of Cook's lawyers for all their civil litigation, their labor and employment cases, um, and all those those matters, and so it's a pretty big office. Mm-hmm. So I learned how to manage people. I learned how to do a budget. Learned how to handle HR issues. Mm-hmm. So all the kinds of things you learn also in business. And so uh, I did that, and then then I went into the private sector after after the after about almost thirteen years in the public sector. So you mentioned a couple of different positions that you held. For you, how have you known when it's been time to move on to the next opportunity? Um, it's been a combination of uh, um, it just feels like the right time. So I was in the U.S. Attorney's Office for about seven years, and after about seven years is kind of that point where you decide whether or not this is a career for you or whether or not you really want to try and do something else. Because you start seeing some of the same cases. Mm-hmm. You start doing some of the same things. It's not exactly, it's not boredom exa- at all. It's just you start to be a little bit more repetitive, and you start thinking, if I'd stay here too long, it'll be hard for me to transition to something else. So I actually transitioned out of the U.S. Attorney's Office into private practice. 
the first place I went was not a great fit. And there was a new state's attorney and he was hiring, so I went, I hadn't gotten being a prosecutor out of my blood, and so I went to the state's attorney's office. And then I left there because my boss uh, uh, lost his election. Uh, and mm-hmm. so I had to leave because I was so senior. Um, the new state's attorney wanted a different first assistant, which is totally understandable. Mm-hmm. And so then I went to private practice for a while because I needed to learn some things that I didn't learn as a criminal lawyer. Mm-hmm. So that move was not my choice, but it was fine. It was time, and I chose to go to a firm because I needed to get some skill sets that, that I didn't already have, and I knew that. Um, and then from there, I went into the corporate world. I was with a firm for about three years, and that was for me really because I really started to realize after about three years that while I could do corporate litigation or business litigation, I didn't love it. Mm-hmm. Um, I love I loved being a criminal prosecutor. I loved the work. I loved the engaging with people. I loved the opportunity to have people think differently, to be you know a person of color and a woman in a world mm-hmm. where there were very few of us. Um, um, and I didn't love civil litigation. It was okay, but uh, you know, large law firms, they value you based on how long it takes you to do something, mm-hmm. which for me, I value being efficient and doing things well. Um, and, um, uh, and also what I was finding with my, my clients, the people I was representing, was that a lot of their problems could have been avoided mm-hmm. if they'd had better counsel at their company. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so... Um, an opportunity came up um, at, at Sara Lee. Um, the, we, the, someone who had been at my law firm became the general counsel, actually an African-American guy who had been named Rick Palmore, who had been at uh, my law firm uh, at the time, and, and he had left and gone in, in-house at Sara Lee. He became the general counsel, and his job, which was a deputy general counsel, was open, and so I called him said, hey, are you going to fill your job? And if you are, can will you talk to me? Will you interview me for it? And it was really important that I do that because I'd been a prosecutor my whole career mm-hmm. or, a, or a litigator, a trial lawyer. And and this was a corporate in-house job. And, and the correlation wasn't clear. Most people didn't understand what I did at the state's attorney's office mm-hmm. in terms of running a law office or managing lawyers. And so if I hadn't reached out to him... Although I knew him, I, he wouldn't. It wouldn't. They wouldn't have seen me as a great fit for that job. So you know, I inserted myself there. And I think the lesson for me, and I think for others who are listening, is it's you have to sometimes jump on opportunity. Um, it's okay to ask. You know, sometimes the door won't open. But if you don't ask, if you don't know what you you're capable of, and you're not uh, able to promote that to others. Um, sometimes you'll miss an opportunity. So I asked him if he would interview me. He did and, and um, went really well. And uh, ultimately I got the job. I went to Sara Lee and became a deputy general counsel. And there I managed the lawyers who supported the divisions. So oh, Sara Lee was a basically, we don't have a lot of these companies anymore, but it was a conglomerate. So Sara Lee owned a lot of different brands. It was a consumer products company. Um, that owned a lot of different brands that you would that you know. So it owned Sara Lee. Mm-hmm. It owned actually we owned. I used to tell people that I had died and gone to job heaven when I went to Sara Lee because we owned Sara Lee bread and cheesecake. Mm-hmm. We owned Playtex and um, uh, and we made so we made the Wonder Bra. Um, we owned uh, um, Hanes stockings until we made all this beautiful women's lingerie, and then we owned Coach. 
actually at oh. the time. Yeah, we owned Coach. So I was like, okay, this is kind of... Oh, and we owned um, Hillshire Farms, which made bacon. Oh, my gosh. So, yeah, yeah, exactly. It was like, okay, I love this company. Um, uh, and um, it was an international company. In fact, none of the lawyers... Shirley was headquartered here, but none of the groups of lawyers who supported me cause I, or who reported to me they man they worked for the businesses and the businesses were headquartered mm-hmm. literally all over the world so everybody who reported to me was elsewhere so mm-hmm. i had to travel a lot um was a, was a little challenging cuz at the time i had three young children um but my uh, my husband uh, who i met when i was in the us Attorney, us attorney's office was a pro, uh, in law enforcement and he didn't he had some weird hours but he didn't have to travel much so mm-hmm. that that helped and uh, we had had a fantastic sitter who was really great so that helped too so we, we made it work and um, um, I traveled literally all over the world the only place they didn't have operations was Asia but all over Europe Australia so and that was it was great and it was a really good company and I joined I enjoyed the work and then um, I was there for about three years and then Sears was looking for a general counsel and somebody and connected me with the recruiter that was doing that search. So there, again, it was opportunity um, opened up, and I put my name in the hat to seek that job. And Sears was specifically looking, trying to diversify their yeah. senior team. So their senior team at Sears had was non-diverse and had never been diverse. Mm. So I got the job as the general counsel, uh, and uh, for me, it was a good job, although I loved my job at Sierra Lee. I was reporting to an African amazing, he's probably one of the b- best bosses I have ever had. He was a terrific leader. He was really great. He, as, I, as I progressed, he expanded my response, scope of responsibility. He's really a tremendous guy and a, a great role model. Um, but this was a tremendous opportunity to be, be the general counsel mm-hmm. at an iconic American company. So um, so that's why I pursued it, even though had that opportunity not come up, I wouldn't have, I wasn't looking to leave Sarah got Lee. It, got it. Um, but I got the job at um, Sears, and um, I was the first African-American ever to report to the CEO of the company to be a member of their senior executive team. So kudos to this then CEO for, um, who was a guy named Alan Lacey, for pushing hard to, to create diversity. Um, and they, and um, the other thing they did was they gave me a lot of support. Mm. So uh, when I started, I had two coaches, um, uh, uh, leadership coaches. And when they first told me they were going to give me two coaches, I was really annoyed. I was like, why? Because I was like, what? You think I can't do this job? You think, you think I'm so weak that I need two, not one, but two coaches? Uh, so, but then, uh, but then I met the coaches, and one was um, a leadership coach, a traditional leadership coach named Dan Champa, who's amazing. Um, and uh, the other, um, and I'm going to have a senior moment on his name, is an African American, um, and he wrote a book called Cracking the Code, which was about uh, African Americans succeeding in corporate America. And he was specifically, it was specifically about, okay, Dan Champa can help you as leadership, but you're going to need help being successful because there's only one of you for like miles. Um, and there's, 
separate challenges that face people of color as they progress mm-hmm. uh, in senior roles in corporate America. And so, again, I give, and, and that was not cheap, and the company paid for it. So mm-hmm. eventually I realized that it wasn't about my competency. It was about recognizing that there were things that I, skill sets that I needed to develop that I would not have had experience with, mm-hmm. um, and um, they were making an investment in helping me develop it. And both coaches were very helpful to me um, and really helped, and so it worked out. So I got over it. I got, <laughs> over, I got over my annoyance. Um, and so I was the general counsel there for three years, and um, uh, we did a deal. Uh, ultimately, we did a deal with, with, K, with Kmart, Okay. Kmart, we merged with Kmart, mm-hmm. um, and there was a lot of. And when you do that, there's a lot of changes in leadership. Mm-hmm. I stayed. They asked me to stay as the general counsel. I stayed. I went through the merger. We had a lot of executive changes. Just pretty much everybody who had been on the executive team ultimately left, and and I stayed for about six months. But then I left uh, because I really it was clear the leadership had a very different approach mm-hmm. to leadership than I than I did, and I didn't. Um, think it was going to be a good fit for me personally mm-hmm. so I left and um, was uh, in between jobs for a little bit and then ultimately went to a company called I have a friend who's at uh, Exelon company here that runs the uh, power company they're yeah. big they're a big power company um, and I have a friend who was the was a, was a, he was not the general counsel but he was a senior lawyer there he ultimately became the general counsel and now he's like number two in the company but at the time he was a senior um, a lawyer there, and he called, and they were looking for a head of HR. Um, and uh, he said, "You know, we're looking for a head of HR. I know you're not, in, you didn't do HR, but you know, I think you could do this." And I thought, you know, I just finished doing this huge merger, of a mm-hmm. huge, you know, we had our Sears had four hundred thousand employees. We had huge executive comp issues. You know, they would you say 400,000? 400,000. It was a big retailer, right? Oh, so, my gosh. Yeah. I mean, if you think about it, it's a national retailer. We had employees, you know, stores all over the country. We had close to 1,000 stores. Um, so, and then when we merged, we had more than that. So, um, and, you know, when you do a merger like that, it's all employee issues, right? Termination, executive compensation, retirement benefits, all those kinds of things. So I was like, sure, I can do HR. <laughs> and it's a problem for us. I tell I learned a lot. So uh, so I went to Exxon and um, got hired as the head of HR. The person who was the head of HR was retiring, so I became the, ultimately the chief human resources officer there. And it was great. And I but I learned a lot. What I learned was, um, first of all, different role. There's a reason why HR people typically, although some HR people are lawyers, but HR and law are different. <laughs> they require different skill sets. HR people and lawyers are different. Although sometimes there, you know, there are a lot of lawyers who do employment stuff ultimately go into HR because there is a lot of overlap. But they're motivated by different things. Mm-hmm. And so it was a really good lesson for me in learning that the things that I used to do to motivate lawyers mm-hmm. didn't always motivate the HR mm-hmm. people who reported to me. And the other thing that uh, is in law, in law and as a general counsel, if you have a legal problem at a company, generally the business people, you talk to them, and they go, I have a legal problem, and then the legal pe- people go fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, and you get to hire, as the general counsel, you hire the people who work on your team, and you hire the outside lawyers that support you. And then you go fix the problem, and you have control over fixing it, and then you go back to the business people, or you do it with the business people, mm-hmm. but you're managing it, so you can you have a lot of control over outcomes. In HR, 
you don't really do ultimately execute on anything, right? Mm-hmm. So think about it. You create a um, review program, an employee review program that people have to review their employees every year. You teach them how to do reviews. But then the managers do the reviews. Mm-hmm. You have a leadership development program. You teach the managers how to do that. And then they do it. So, you, But you don't actually do stuff. You create stuff, but other people execute it, mm-hmm. right? And so you have to be it's different skill sets. You have to be good at persuading people mm-hmm. how to do stuff. Um, and because you're not the one who actually executing on it when the day is done, it's the managers and the employees, what happens is when it goes really well, everybody's like, look at this fabulous job I did, the managers. When it doesn't go really well, they go, HR sucks. Uh, and so, so it's very hard for people in the HR role to, to get valued mm-hmm. unless you work in a company where people, with people who really understand human capital Mm -hmm. and that's becoming a much more important uh, function Mm -hmm. Um, in most companies the companies that are really successful value their human capital and they value their HR team because if your human capital is not working your company's not going to work if your leadership team if you have a messed up leadership team your company's not going to work it's just not say that again (laughs) I think people really undervalue the role that that plays in the success of everyone underneath it makes a huge difference a bad leader can destroy a company. Look at um, oh, what's the the one where Ken Lay and uh, Enron. Mm. It's been there in the two thousands. You know, on on uh, CNN they're running the series the two thousands now. Enron. Enron was like it was like the world's best company. Um, some of your until heard. it wasn't until it didn't <laughs> exist anymore. And why it didn't exist anymore? Because the leadership was corrupt. They mm-hmm. ruined a you know a billion multi billion dollar company. Leadership can, bad leadership, you know, I sit on the school board here in, in Chicago and I tell everyone, it is impossible. You cannot have a level one school without a great principal. Mm-hmm. You can't. It's impossible. You cannot have a great school without a good to great principal. Mm-hmm. You cannot do it. You can have a school full of great teachers if you have a bad principal. It does not matter. Actually, when my kids were um, growing up, the a neighborhood school, we, my family, we raised my kids in Beverly, which is actually on the south side of the city where I still live. And our, my kids went to the neighborhood school for elementary school. It was a great school. It is a great school. Um, and uh, our principal left, and um, the local school council appointed another person. And um, the, they picked wrong. The person, mm. it turns out, was actually like, kind of literally crazy um, and in the space of three months this guy I mean he arrested the li- he had the old librarian arrested he had teachers the leaving. librarian yeah I think got into some kind of dispute you know, he had or had the police come and take her out exactly it was, I'm telling you the guy was crazy <laughs> it was not good um, you know the teachers were leaving the, you know in the halls crying oh, it was no. a but he took you know what was a fine level one school and it went to like chaos in three months. Now, it turns out he was particularly crazy and uh, particularly bad, and they ultimately got fixed. But the point is, a bad leader can, can, can it's very hard to do well with your company, with your school, or if you have a, if you have a leader that's not competent. And, and so HR, because they help leaders develop mm-hmm. and they help them, are, it's a really critical role um, that is, but it's hard for people oftentimes, you know, when they're dealing with numbers and, you know, do you, do you, are you managing a P&L, mm-hmm. um, you know, to really value it. Um, mm-hmm. And it, that's particularly challenging. It becomes challenging for African Americans or people of color 
in corporate America because very often we are in we're either we're in um, support staff roles mm-hmm. like legal right we do really well in uh, um, in lawyer roles in HR roles mm-hmm. like you'll see way more people of color leading HR functions or as general counsel or senior members of the legal team um, than you do running a business mm-hmm. um, and that's in part because. Um, we succeed well. Those are the entry points into those roles are a lot easier, are easier, and we do well. Um, and in part because we don't oftentimes don't get the opportunity mm-hmm. in P and L and pure business roles and places. And that's starting to change, but we companies still have a lot of work uh, to do around it. So anyway, I went to Exxon, ran HR, um, and then um, when the recession hit, we did a lot of restructuring of the company, like every business did. And HR got hit really hard. Uh, and we restructured it, and I actually eliminated my job and moved the HR function to report to another senior leader at the company, and then I became the general counsel for uh, a short period of time. Uh, but ultimately, it was right around, you know, it was 2009, 2010, people were, a lot of people here from Chicago were going to Washington to work for President Obama, um, and I started to think about going back, going to Washington, um, or trying to go back into the public sector, and the, Ur- the Chicago Urban League uh, was looking for a new CEO, and so I decided to uh, apply for that because um, I had I actually was sitting at the time on the National Urban League board. Mm-hmm. So I'd been on the National Urban League board at that point for about six years. I went on when I was at Sears, um, and uh, my parents were very involved in the Urban League. Um, uh, I was uh, you know really. An important organization to me. I love the work, and so I thought I could do. I'm very passionate about the work, community building, generally, and particularly strengthening the African American community, expanding oppor- opportunity for African Americans. Um, and I thought I had the right background at that point. Mm. And, you know, I knew a lot of people. I thought I could help raise money. Had great relationships in the business community at that point. Um, I had run organizations, mm. and so uh, so I went and left and ran the Urban League. Um, for about five years and okay. loved it um, really um, and they had been struggling they had they had an interim CEO the original CEO left uh, to run for office actually and then um, uh, they had, had the recession hit and they had, had they had been struggling they had they'd run a two they ran a two million dollar deficit the year before I got there so they needed to be corrected course mm-hmm. corrected which we did um, so my first year I ran a $700,000 deficit, and then every year after that, we had a balanced budget, so, um, and really elevated the Urban League back to the level of importance Mm -hmm. in the community that I think it needs to have. Um, So I did that, and then in 2015, the race, the Senate race here was coming up, and um, uh, the the party was kind of coalescing around uh, Congresswoman Tammy, who then Congresswoman Tammy Duckworth, now Senator Tammy Duckworth, and um, and while I have a lot of respect for her, I thought that in Congress she was not focusing on the issues that I thought were important, mm-hmm. particularly to the African American community, but I also thought to working class families, she wasn't talking about um, uh, jobs and and the skills gap and how you're gonna how are people who are under-trained going to get access to the economic opportunities and the jobs that are coming. She wasn't talking about guns at the time. She wasn't talking about guns and gun violence at all. Mm -hmm. Um, She wasn't um, 
talking about criminal justice reform and over-incarceration and how we deal with the fact that we've been doing that, and then we have all these individuals coming who've been you know, hyper-incarcerated and are now coming back into uh, the system, uh, into the com community, with no real pathway to rejoin um, uh, and, and build a, a, a independent economic, have in, in economic independence. So she wasn't talking about any of that, and I thought, well, I mean, she may be great, but if she's not going to even talk about the issues that are going to make difference for working class families and in general and African Americans in particular, I, 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 somebody needs to be in the race to have that conversation. So I got into the race um, and ran and learned a lot um, about politics and about the importance of name recognition, which she had and I didn't, um, and. Uh, uh, and so ran a great race and you know got about little, almost 25% of the vote, um, almost 500,000 votes statewide. So it was a big That's election. Amazing. Yeah, it was it was good. Um, and um, but um, uh, lost and then ultimately went to work for Mayor Emanuel, doing neighborhood development, which was very similar to what I was doing at the Urban League. Uh, and again, it's really about expanding economic opportunity. You know, we have communities on the south and west side of the city where People have just not had the same access to economic opportunity, be it business economic opportunity, be it job, uh, be it, you know, it was for a while education. I think the mayor, the city's done a lot in the time that, since when I was on the school board, to expand the quality of schools that are there. So, you know, when the mayor became mayor, the graduation rate was in 2000, the year before, was hovered around 50%. That means 50% of the people were not graduating. That's now uh, close to 80%. Uh, percent. And the other thing is when I came on the school board in 2011, there were literally entire areas on the south and west sides where there were no performing schools. So mm -hmm. you sending your kid to a public school, you were guaranteed to be sending your kid, your child, sorry, to a school that was not going to prepare them for the, properly for the next level. That's not true anymore. Mm -hmm. We still have a lot of work to do. We still have about 25% of the schools um, uh, particularly on the south and west sides that are not performing, mm -hmm. but that means seventy five percent are. It was zero percent, you know, in uh, six years, seven years ago, and so that means that more kids. Sorry, I say kids, and I've given, there's a woman who used to come to school board meetings who would always go, "Kid is a small goat," and so I have to stop. Child. It's not have to use the word child. I'm not supposed to use the word kid, but of course I always do it anyway. <laughs> Children. <laughs> Um, now more children now have access <coughs> to a quality, to an education that is going to enable them to go to high school, graduate high school, and then be ready if they want to go to college, be ready for college. Uh, if they need to want to go into a trade or a skill, or mm -hmm. that they've got the skill sets that they need. Um, so we still, it's not perfect, but it's better. Um, before it wasn't working at all. And, and the problem is, is that more and more jobs even simple jobs to get a job at Walmart, you got to pass a ninth grade math test. Mm -hmm. um, and so, if you're if you're not capable of doing that because we've undereducated you, then shame on us. Mm -hmm. So that's so working on that and neighborhood development was something that I love to do and, and circle back to where I am now at Work Business Chicago, and that's still what I'm doing, which is economic development. And that's my story. Um, you have a phenomenal story, but let's go back. So there have been points in your career, you talked about too, where you were the first black woman mm -hmm. to occupy that space. For you, what was the biggest like surprise? 
I, I think it's not so much that it was a surprise. I think it's that it's, and, and I think this is still true. And I, I tell, when I talk to people, you know, to young people, I tell them this all the time. Here's the thing you have to remember. For me, it's not so much a surprise. It was really more, you got to remember that most of the people that you're around, you are the first black person that they've worked with as a peer. Mm. Right? Now maybe they've had a secretary or, you know, a junior associate, um, but you are the first, and in many, you know, instances, you're the first person they've worked with that, you know, quote unquote, has a brain, right? You know, mm. that's, that's, uh, and so they're seeing, or even that they've really had a substantive relationship with. Mm-hmm. So their, their knowledge of black people is, is what they see on TV, right? It is, and it is, and, uh, it's un- they have a lot of unconscious bias. So mm. they don't, you know, I saw this when I was in HR, right, that people, they don't even know when they were interviewing people, right? They're just, they're making judgments about people, and you're like, well, that doesn't really make any sense. And, and it's, it's, you know, the same, the same language coming from someone who looks like them, mm. um, they interpret one way. It comes from somebody who, of color, and they interpret it in a negative way. And so for me, what I saw it as is I have, I have a hurdle to overcome, which is to prove my excellence. Mm-hmm. Um, and once I do that, you know, I expect people to, to treat me with some level of respect. But I can't walk in and assume that just because I got here. Because mm-hmm. typically when you get there, people would say, well, the only reason you're here is because you're black and a woman and they needed... And they needed to they needed to fill to check that diversity box. It's good for the optics, right? It's good for the optics, and so so then so you still have to go prove that you're good. So that was and that's you know I just think it's unfortunately that's still very true mm-hmm. for black people generally, black women in particular. You've got to you know you don't get that same you know white white guy walks in the room everybody assumes they're competent. Mm-hmm. You walk in the room everybody assumes. You know, not necessarily consciously, mm-hmm. but somewhere in there, they're thinking, "Yeah, I'm expecting them to screw this up," um, and um, and that doesn't always happen. But you need to recognize, and part of that is not because they're racist; it's because they don't know mm-hmm. what they know about black people is not positive, right? Mm-hmm. The messages we send generally. It's why. You know, and I know lots of people love Empire, like that favorite show, and Power, and all those shows. I don't watch them because I'm like, I'm tired. I want to see, you know, I want to see billions with black people. Mm-hmm. That's what I want to see, right? Mm-hmm. I want to see black people owning a, a mega conglomerate and running a business and doing it well. Mm-hmm. Um, I want to, I don't, you know, I, you know, we don't have to be successful just in illicit enterprises mm-hmm. right we don't have to be mobsters and gangsters and um caricatures you know and so and it's not the cosby's because that's a caricature mm-hmm. the whole other way but you know we have to be able to be seen as successful in a whole host of way in a broad range as broad a range of ways as the majority culture and so um that's and i think that's the challenge when you start particularly in corporate america because we still have a huge gap in the corporate America. If you look at any any company, with a very few exceptions, maybe McDonald's um, is one, uh, and there probably are a few others. But 
um, where if you start at the senior level and work your way in senior level, then it's executive vice president or senior vice president, then it's vice president, and then it's director. If you start those levels, like it's like a wasteland for mm. people of color. Mm-hmm. There are some companies that have almost none, if any, you know, black people, women, and then you know, get down to manager, then you start seeing more. Um, but it's very rare, and and the, and the problem with that is that's what they promote from. Like vice presidents come from the director level, you know, executive or senior vice presidents come from the vice president level. Well, if there's no black people or people of color in those levels internally the only way you can diversify is to hire externally and companies do but we still have a there we still have an issue with companies being successful in hiring retaining and promoting people of color so for you so let's say there's a young woman who's listening to this now who is at that manager level that you talked about because you can see a little bit more diversity there what things or skills should they be thinking about that could help them get to that director level since we know that's the pipeline right i I say the first thing i say i say that and i say this everybody the first thing for all of us is you have to be excellent at what you do Mm -hmm. and you have to be honest about your excellence right you know, sometimes we're, you know, it's hard, it's hard to be honest about, I was saying about this on the train today, um, because um, my, uh, my limiter, like you take all those tests, every now and then, psychological tests, my limiter is that I'm volatile, because I'm very passionate and emotional about what I do, and when I get stressed, I get volatile, and what that means is that, like, <laughs> I get really loud. Uh, so uh, it can be scary and so that's not a good skill and so I was on the train I was literally I was volatile at something yesterday so I shouldn't have been volatile <laughs> so on the train I was like I have really got to manage this better than I have been managing it mm. my point there is doesn't matter who you are or what level you you got to recognize what you're what you're really good at and push that and then you have to recognize what you're weak at and if it needs to be fixed you need to fix it and if it's something that's just not a strength for you you need to make sure that you've got people around you who can cover that. But the main thing is, if you're a manager, do your job super well, mm-hmm. right? Because right now in particular, talent is everything. And so if you're doing your job really well, talent will overcome you know, that unconscious bias mm-hmm. generally because people are, companies now are stretched on talent. So that's number one. Number two is look for opportunities, right? If you also heard in my stories you know, a lot of something came, you know, I saw something and I went and then I went to talk to him and said, could I do that? Um, if there's a, an opportunity to lead a team, mm-hmm. an opportunity to volunteer, to run a program, um, take it, mm-hmm. right? And put yourself in the situation of being seen as, as and showing skill sets to a new range of people. Um, um, offer to take on a task, even if it's a stretch task for you. Right, because that way you'll show people a that you've got a broader range of set of skills than they may otherwise realize, and b that you're the kind of person they can rely on to get stuff done. Mm. As a manager, I can tell you the people I love. Uh, yesterday, I had a guy. It's two days ago. One of the guys who reports to me. Um, it was something came up, and anyway, the bottom line, the email he sent me was, "I know you saw this. I." I read it, I responded, I took care of it. I was like, hallelujah, <laughs> hallelujah. Right? Best this is, I, I took, took care, care of it. it. I was like, thank you. <laughs> um, and then he told me that he took care of mm-hmm. it, right? I mean, those two things, and if you're not sure, you say like, I'm going to, if it's okay with you, I will handle this, mm-hmm. right? Knowing that you have people who are thinking about it and taking accountability and, and, 
and, and be, so find opportunities to do that, I would say. And then the third thing I would say is find somebody that can mentor you, um, mm-hmm. that um, can that you can go and talk to um, that's at a, either a higher level or a senior uh, either in your in company or if your company doesn't really a fit, find somebody externally who mm-hmm. can help you think through how to work it, at your company. But people generally want to invest in your career. Mm-hmm. Not always. And sometimes you'll ask and they'll say, I don't have time mm-hmm. or whatever. They'll say no. Well, you've not, you're not going to, you're not going to hurt yourself. There's no negative from that by them saying no. Um, and most times, you know, I, way more than 50% of the time, people are going to say, sure. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and, that because, and then getting someone else, particularly in your company, to invest in your success is, really, is also really helpful. And, and people want to be wanted and respected. Um, and you talked, I laughed, but you talked a little bit about being volatile, right? Mm-hmm. And for a lot of people who are not of color mm-hmm. that comes across as like the angry black woman or like being very aggressive. Do you think about that? And how have you tried to avoid being stereotyped in one way or the other? Right. So I think, um, I didn't haven't always thought about it. It is, you know, I know it's a limiter for me, but I will say that even when I'm not doing that, when I'm consciously not doing that, I, people have described me as not as angry, but as scary, right? Scary. Scary. Um, and here's the thing. I am scary because, not because I'm an angry black woman or because I'm volatile. I'm scary because I ask hard questions mm-hmm. and I tell people the truth. Mm-hmm. And people don't always like that. You know, people like, you know, they like, they don't like choppy waters always. And mm-hmm. I, I always tell people that, um, like every job I've ever interviewed for, you know, the pers- the senior person I'm interviewing with is like, I don't want to have... I don't want to have a bunch of yes people on my mm. team. I want a team that tells me the truth, and I want a team that's direct and honest with me. And the truth is, nobody likes that. Like I, mean, if I say that nobody, nobody likes being disagreed with. Nobody. The question is, how well do they handle it? Mm. And not, and people don't handle it as well as they tell you they're going to handle mm. it. And so you have to manage how you disagree with people or how you deliver that information. Mm. And and I do that. But even when you're managing it, you know, people, people, it makes people uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. And that's, um, I think that's the, and I'm, I'm aware of that. And sometimes you have, there, sometimes depending on who you're dealing with and how senior they are and what you're trying to get done, you have to just take that down like five notches, right? You just have to be, you know, you can't even disagree in the room. You mm-hmm. just have to say, you have to just nod and then later on take it offline and mm-hmm. go to the person in a non-confrontational where there's five other people in the room and say, you know, I have some concerns about blah, 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 blah. Um, and so I think it depends on where you are and how you're doing it. But sometimes even when you're doing it perfectly, people are going to assume they're going to they're going to assume things, not because of what you did, but because of what I said before, because their bias, their unconscious bias has already labeled you. And so you just have to manage that um, as best you can. Um, you work now with a lot of different companies, right, as part of your um of your job are you and there's a lot of conversations around being your authentic self right and like what that looks like for women of color for black women have you started to see that change in like how accepting businesses are of the different types of personalities cultural backgrounds um, that are coming into their workspaces um and it's such a great question where I'm actually work we're working on a potential discussion series with the Chicago 
Chicago Scholars, which is an organization that helps uh, young people, um, uh, high school students, uh, get their get uh, ready for to apply for college, to apply and then get into college, and then it helps them as they go through college. And now it, Chicago Scholars has been around for a while. They've got students who are coming out of college mm-hmm. um, and into the workforce, and those students, many of them, are having challenges. And so we're starting to uh, we're thinking we're trying to start a discussion series around this issue about companies being ready for the diverse pool of talent that is expanding. It's already out there, but it's growing, mm-hmm. right? The fact is the talent pool is going to get more diverse. Mm-hmm. And if you if you are in the war for talent and you understand that's how you're going to succeed, you have got to have a work environment that is um, con- uh, supportive of diversity and inclusion. And, and as you know, companies have been talking about it for a really long time. Mm-hmm. Not as everybody is doing it well. Some companies are doing it mm-hmm. better than others. And so I think those practices are going to get developed. And, and so I would say, you know, overall, do I think companies are there? No. Do I think more and more are working on better ways of handling it? of getting there, yes. I think they're trying, you know, there's a, a pledge that a number of CEOs are signing mm-hmm. around their commitment to inclusion um, and and what they're going to do about it. What You know, for me, um, it is about senior executives walking into a room and when they're sitting at a table and they're talking to their direct reports and if everybody there looks like you, that's bad. Mm-hmm. That's bad for your company. That's bad for your business. And you should be bothered by it mm-hmm. um, because it means that you've got a problem when it comes to talent. Um, and we're not there yet. But that that's my goal. My goal is for the, to be us, right? Because every time I walk into a room and I'm the only person in there, I'm like, oh, I'm the only person in here. That happens like <laughs> way, that looks like me. It happens like way too much. Still, right? It's, 20, mm-hmm. it's 2018. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I don't expect the room to be full of black people, but I'd like to see even more women and, mm-hmm. you know, more more diversity in the room um, and, um, and at least have people go like, hmm, this is probably not a good scenario. I need to be thoughtful about how we're going to change that. Got it. Um, and I want to be respectful of your time. So we're running a little long, so we're yes, just going to go sorry. straight. No, it's okay. <laughs> well, I, you probably have a million things to do, so we're going to no. go to the lightning round okay. question. So great. Don't overthink this. It's okay. literally the first thing that comes to mind. Got it. So looking back on your career, what's one piece of advice that you took early on that you probably should not have? Right. I, you know, I, I saw that. I, I can't think of, of one that I, sh- I shouldn't have, that I did that I shouldn't have done. Um, uh, I think uh, one that I should have done mm-hmm. um, is, and that I've, st- and this is, uh, uh, Another question, so I'm just going to answer it. Is and that I still struggle with is listening. Right? I'm 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 very much like a proactive go go go. Mm-hmm. You know, so I walk into a meeting and I've got you know I know you know and listening. And um, my boss at Sara Lee, who I mentioned, is a great boss. He's a tremendous listener, mm-hmm. really good. Like you go, I go in and talk to him, and I'd be like. And he would just—he would not say anything that I like finish, and then he'd be like, "Are you done?" <laughs> and then I would, then he was, but but that but that idea that you put aside what you're thinking mm-hmm. and actually listen to what people say mm-hmm. um, instead of preparing your response to what they're saying is really important. And and when you do that, you will be more often change your perspective. And the other thing is, as a manager, my other thing that I, that I learned is 
as a manager is if I jump in early and go, we should do this, this, and this, then everybody just does what I say, mm. as opposed to them saying and doing what they say. And so it's really hard for me uh, still to this day, uh, but I'm, I'm working on it. Okay. Uh, what's one book that has either had the biggest impact on your career or that you can read over and over and over again? So uh, I mentioned the leadership coach that I had, uh, the two leadership coaches I had at Sears. So the one of them, both of them, Cracking the Code is a great book okay. as well. Um, but the other book uh, that Dan, Dan Champa, who's the other coach, wrote a book called Right from the Start. Okay. It's basically about how, how to, when you create success when you start a new role, um, and you're coming into a new place, and I read it every time I start a new job, mm. which in my career has been a lot, um, and it's been incredibly helpful. Okay. Um, one of the things that people say, which is true, most of the decisions about your career are happening behind closed doors where you aren't, and so for you, what do you hope people are saying about you when you are not in the room? Uh, so I thought that was a great question. I think it kind of depends on who the people are. So if it's the people who are impactful on my career I, and uh, that I, you know, peers and, and bosses, I, I hope that they're saying um, she's reliable mm-hmm. and, and uh, integrity, right? So that when I say something, they know it's accurate, that, mm-hmm. it's, that, it's the, that it's the best piece of information I have. And they also know that when they give me something to do, it'll get done. Mm-hmm. So that they don't, ha- and they don't have to worry about it. They don't have to be... Um, they don't have to be back to ground. Like, is that thing going to get taken care mm-hmm. of? So that's so that's that. And for the people who work for me, what I hope that the, they'll say is that I have their back, um, that I'm going to push them, I'm going to be hard on them and, and try and drive them. But when the day is done, we're one team, and I have their back. Um, and that I'm not going to throw them under the bus. You know, we're all going to go under the... If, we go, if we're going under the bus, going down we're together. all going together, <laughs> um, and we are one team. I am, our, my success is... Our, we're successful together, mm-hmm. not, and, I, and I want them to know that. Perfect. That was a great answer. So thank you so much again for your time. Thank um, you. It's fun. Was it? Yeah, like, yeah I'd like to talk, as you yeah, can see. Yeah, and yeah. I feel like there's so much. People, if you have not read about Andy, read mm-hmm. about her. She's done so much uh, in her career, but I'm really glad that I got to spend some time thank with you this you. afternoon. It was fun. So three gems that I got from this interview with Andrea Zopp. The first is that you have to be excellent at what you do and you have to be honest about your excellence. I think we've heard that from the guests that we've talked to in the past, but again, the importance of excellence. The second is you have to recognize what you are good at and push for that. And you also have to be able to recognize what you are weak at. And if that needs to be fixed, it is your responsibility to do what you need to do to fix it. And the last thing, and I think this is the most important thing that I got from it, is you have to have the ability to look for opportunities and then ask. Throw your hat in the ring. If you see something that you think could be a good fit, throw your hat in the ring because you just never know what could come from that opportunity. As always, if you'd like to keep the conversation going, meet us in our Facebook group at I Choose the Ladder or on Instagram at I Choose the Ladder. And until next time, thank you for listening.